Hi, this is Cam from the Nerdbook Review, where we strive to broaden your fantasy horizons. Today, I will be bringing you an author interview. We had Deborah Wolf on this week. Uh, I was super excited. Last year, her debut novel, The Dragon's Legacy, was my favorite book of the year, and I really enjoyed the follow-up, The Forbidden City, as well. As per usual, I will get uh, the usual spiel out of the way, and then we'll get right to the interview. You can reach us via Facebook at Nerdbook Review, on Gmail at nerdbookreview at gmail.com, through Twitter with the handle Nerdbook Review, and once again, if you would be so kind as to leave a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Next week, we will be bringing you The Poppy War. Uh, that'll be Katie, Chris, and myself. Uh, that is quite the debut novel as well uh, by a young author named Rebecca Kwong. It is something that I hope you guys will all read, and it is certainly far more than just a uh, standard slash and uh, magic fantasy novel. All right, well, let's get right to Deborah Wolf. Thank you. The Nerdbook Review is happy to welcome author Deborah Wolf to the podcast today. She's the author of The Dragon's Legacy and The Forbidden City, as well as Split Feather, an urban fantasy set in a different series. How are you today? I'm very well. How about yourself? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, not a whole bunch to tell. I'm a little bit of a barbarian, a little bit of an author, a little bit of an odd duck. Um, <laughs> wanted to be an author since I was about four years old, but I uh, joined the army instead. Um, I was an Arabic linguist and then a kind of a single mom, jack of all trades, before I finally one day just decided to, to say the hell with it and um, wrote the book that I'd always wanted to write. And it's kind of taken off from there. Well, that's awesome. Uh, so I guess I can see that, that Arab linguist uh, influence with the Forbidden City and Dragon's Legacy then. Absolutely. Um, you know, Middle Eastern cultures were uh, completely new and wonderful to me. Um, I grew up mostly in, in a small Athabascan village in the middle of Alaska. Um, I had never been uh, introduced to any uh, Eastern or Middle Eastern cultures, and um, during my Arabic training, you know, a big part of that is um, cultural training, and I just, I, I found it a, a really wonderful, rich world with um, fascinating history and fascinating people, and so, of course, I wanted to use that. Yeah, absolutely, and then I guess the uh, that Alaska background uh, with Split Feather then? Yes, um, Split Feather is the kind of book that really can't be written by somebody who does not live or has not lived in Alaska. Um, there's an awful lot of weird stuff that goes on up there. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's a very rich tapestry, too. And I, and I did want to point out that Split Feather, um, I, I'm not Athabascan myself, although I did grow up in an Athabascan village. I moved there when I was uh, eight or nine years old. Um, I wanted to tell the story not through cultural appropriation and tell it from the point of view of somebody who is Athabascan, but from the point of view of an outsider looking in. Um, and a split feather is 
uh, a person who has been adopted out of the tribes when they're little and it's like a feather that's been split. It can never quite belong to either world. It can never quite be fixed. So that was very important to me um, to keep that title. Yeah, and that's a, that was an unfortunate uh, legacy, both in uh, Canada and the, the United States with Native tribe. Yeah, and it's something that's ongoing today. Uh, it's, it's a tragic thing and something I feel very strongly about. So, again, um, you know, it's, it's not something that's one or two generations out. It's something that happens every day in America and, um, and especially up in Alaska. So. What, what was it that made you decide to actually write the book, the first book? And which one was the first book? Was it Dragon's Legacy or Split Feather? Dragon's Legacy was the first book I wrote. Um, the working title was The Heart of a Tuolon, uh, which my editor very swiftly mixed. Um, I had always, like I said, I wanted to be a writer since I was four. And when you're a kid and you tell people, I want to be a writer, I want to be an author, the world tells you, you can't do this. Um, it, it's a crazy thing. Nobody makes a living writing. Thousands of people want to write. Nobody ever does it. And it's difficult not to hear those voices when it's an overwhelming theme. Um, and fortunately for all of us, uh, once in a while you get a crazy person who decides not to listen to those voices and goes off and does this completely insane thing. Last year, The Dragon's Legacy, it was my absolute favorite book. How, how did you just come up with such a, a rich world? Did you do a lot of um, like background work, or was it something, that, that story that just came out? Or um, what was your process for, for creating that book? Well, world building itself comes pretty naturally to me. Um, it's a very organic process. Uh, and the character building comes comes easily to me also. I just see it in my head as a movie. Um, a lot of folks have said that they that my books are very visual and they can um, picture things that I've written. I picture it in my own mind first, it, like I'm watching a movie and like I'm directing it. I'll have the action start and go back and, and start over again. Um, and, and a lot of it, is deliberate choices too like um i would take an average trope like the desert society with a sexually repressive culture and it's patriarchal and everybody wears a whole bunch of clothes all the time and nobody has any fun and i would really try to turn that on its head where it's a matriarchal society instead of patriarchal and you know the women is a sign of contempt the warriors will yank their their vests open and bare their breasts to show that not only do we not need armor we don't even need shirts um because you're you know that weak of a competitor and so a lot of it was deliberate but a lot of it just kind of crops up as i'm writing too because the characters really do have voices of their own um it wasn't supposed to be such a big book to begin with I was just going to do a standalone sword and sorcery in the desert, like you're supposed to do for your first book. Um, <laughs> I was thinking probably 90,000 words, one point of view character. But then her mom, Hafsa Zaina, was so interesting that she got a point of view and everybody else just kind of crowded onto the bus. So I got stuck with a whole bunch of characters. Yeah, it's, it is just such a uh, well-fleshed-out world. I know I was joking um, with some friends, and I think uh, even with my review that I left of this, that that 
Uh, I read a lot of novels, and I think, you know what, with some really good work, or with a lot of editing, I could probably write a novel this good. And then I read a novel like yours, and I'm like, you know what, there is absolutely no way I would ever come up with the level of world building that you came up with in this novel. And I'm like, oh, man, this is just, it really is, it feels so alive. And I think maybe it's because I'm a reader who, you know, I, I see that movie in my mind, but the way that you wrote just worked perfectly for that, that, um, you know, I just, I stuck and stayed in that movie in my mind for, you know, hundreds of pages at a time. Well, thank you. That's, that's very flattering. I feel like that about a lot of different authors that I read. Um, Patrick Rothfuss is one of them. Obviously his name of the wind is so lyrical, but so clean and detailed where sometimes I think I was writing off the cuff. All of his writing feels very deliberate. Like he obsessed over every paragraph and every word in every paragraph. And then you got um, Nettie Okorafor with her, for instance, her Who Fears Death. It's so on point and so precise. Um, I always feel like I'm too scatterbrained to, to write something like that. And Robin Hobb with her character building, her characters are very, very real to me when I read her work. Um, and she makes me ugly cry about every hundred pages. I, I go back and see how long it's been since the last time. About every hundred pages. <laughs> so um, to hear somebody say that my work has that same effect on them is um, pretty humbling, actually. I really enjoyed Split Feather as well. And I'm not usually a huge urban fantasy fan. And um, how did you go about like writing that one? I know that you mentioned that you, um, you, you had your, your premise based off of, of your childhood. But was the um, like the the mythology within that also part of of that uh, that tribal culture? It, yes and no. Um, I walked kind of a fine line because it is a borrowed culture, and I'm very um, I'm very cognizant of that fact because there is so much cultural appropriation that goes on. What I what I really wanted to do with Split Feather was provide a Native American protagonist um, so that somebody who's Athabascan can, can read this and go, oh, hey, that's me. This is awesome. Um, and, and apparently I've succeeded in doing that. But I did not want to be that prototypical white girl who goes in writing about something she doesn't know because I will never know Athabascan culture in the way that somebody that, you know, some of my friends who, you know, their culture stretches back generations, they have that right. I don't have that right. And I don't have, I would never have the skill set to do it correctly. So I wanted to write, like I said, somebody who belongs to that culture, but doesn't belong to the culture. Um, and a lot of the stories are, the stories are there. The stories are real. I, I was fortunate when I was little um, and when I was, you know, as, as late as my junior high and high school years, I got to sit and listen to the, the late and impossibly great Catherine Atla, um, wonderful elder who was a traditional storyteller. I got to listen to her tell these ancient, amazing stories. So I wanted to give the the spirit of the stories without actually stealing them and giving them in their, in their entirety. 
So the stories that I have presented are true to the spirit and true to the belief system um, and the worldview of the Athabascan culture without being directly taken because that, like I said, that's not, that's not my right. That's not my place to do it. A little bit like one of those, um, like one of the sand paintings that's made just for tourists and not, you know, for act for actual, uh, magic purposes. <laughs> I gotcha. Is that a series then? Um, yep. It's a series. I have at least one more to write. Um, I've got no, one more under contract. It'll be done probably, uh, January ish. It's called broken feather. Um, I'm not going to tell you a dang thing about it because it's going to be short and fast and dirty like the first one. The only thing I can tell you is I, I already love it. Um, and then it's supposed to be a twin series where there's um, the, the daughter of the midnight sun and then the son of the crescent moon, which is told from the point of view of um, an American Muslim boy who has some unique magical abilities and some of the characters from his story have already cropped up in Siggy's story, although that comes out at a later date. Oh, well, that's very cool then. Are you going to have another book come out this year? Yep, The Forbidden City is my only um, book that's coming out this year. Uh, the Seared Lands is the third book in The Dragon's Legacy that should be coming out in April of 2019. Um, Broken Feather is supposed to come out in September of 2019. Awesome. Um, so with your series, um, both of them, um, are they both through, uh, Titan? Oh, uh, yes, they are. Um, I went ahead after the sale of, um, the dragon's legacy went through, uh, Alice Nightingale, who was the editor who picked it up, um, took a different life path, um, and so my story got uh, dropped into um, Steve Sappel's lap. And Steve was, Steve is the head acquisitions editor at Titan. And he was um, uh, understandably busy wrapping up some other projects at that time. So while it kind of uh, waited to see where we were going with that and how many books they wanted and all of that stuff, uh, I went ahead and wrote the first book in a second series because um, not knowing exactly what they wanted me to do with the first series, I didn't want to commit all my resources to a second book in that series and then have the whole thing just kind of go kaput. So I wrote a first book in a second series. Um, neither my agent nor my editor was overly excited to hear that I was <laughs> writing urban fantasy because apparently it's just dead. But... Uh, fortunately, my agent read it, loved it, um, passed it on to my editor, who also read it and loved it. And so uh, the ugly duckling became a swan. And I've been getting some really good feedback on it. A lot of people have really liked it. Yeah, well, that's awesome. How was your publishing process then? Did you have to uh, submit through multiple people or was it something that you got picked up right away? Or how did that go for you? Well, I... You know, I have a very professional approach to my writing. Um, this is a product that I'm producing. I want to produce the best product that I possibly can with the skill set that I have and the skill set that I'm building. So, um, you know, I, I got together a list of agents in my genre that I thought were 
uh, fantastic and could do a good job for me. And I had all my materials ready and you have no idea how many files I've got. I'd have the a synopsis available in case they wanted a synopsis and I had outlines and I had, you know, three page outlines and 30 page outlines and the first 10 pages and the first thousand words and everything all these different agents wanted, I had ready to go and formatted just in case they wanted something. Um, I worked really hard to build a good query letter um, and targeted my top agents. Fortunately, my very first batch of agents um, included Mark Gottlieb of Trident Media. Uh, he was my he was my number one pick. Um, he read my manuscript. I submitted to him through the Trident website um, on Friday. I refreshed my email to make sure it had gone through, and he requested samples, and that was a shock. Um, it had been about a minute and a half. <laughs> so I sent him a full chapter, and he immediately requested a full manuscript, uh, whereupon I literally fell off my chair. Um, it was a crash. It scared the dogs. It was frightening. When my <laughs> hands stopped shaking, and I could make sure that I hadn't, you know, accidentally sent it to some other person or done some goofy thing that you do when your adrenaline is basically pouring out of your skin. Um, I, I sent it off to Mark, and what I found out later is he left the office, went home, and read it over the weekend. And on Sunday, he um, said he'd like to speak with me regarding representation. And I called my best friend up, and I was shrieking so loudly that she didn't even know who it was. <laughs> that is, that's such a cool story. And then once I calmed down, I, I called him back and I said, yes, I would, I would very much like to discuss representation. You know, I am a human who speaks human language. And, and, and that was the start of uh, what sounds like a great relationship so far. You know, he's been a top-notch agent for me. Uh, I could not be happier with my literary agent. Um, I'm fortunate to consider him a friend as well as my agent. Uh, I, it took him, what, four months, maybe three or four months to sell The Dragon's Legacy. He kept me appraised of every step of the way. So I always knew where it was, who had said yes, who had said no, um, some of the top names of the industry were a very close maybe. And so they sent me feedback saying, you know, this, this, and this. And Mark would forward that to me. And I actually made changes in the manuscript. Because um, these, these are some very, very smart, very skilled people who were giving me their time. They didn't, you know, they owed me nothing. They were giving me their time and their help. So I, I used that. And... That really, I think the changes I made helped to to get that final sale and helped to make it a better book. So I'm I'm very grateful to all the help I've had along the way. You know, um, Alice Nightingale for picking it up, Steve Saffel for being an amazing editor, um, even though I use semicolons more than he would like. And <laughs> we have both discovered that my all of my characters like to blink and surprise a lot. So he puts up with me, Mark puts up with me, and um, I just couldn't be happier. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that you've had a, a great experience with publishing. Where are you planning on going in the future? Uh, how many books do you have in the Dragon's Legacy series, and how many books? I have enough projects on my desk right now to probably keep me going for a decade, and I'm very excited about all of them. Um, 
Dragon's Legacy, um, the third book here, The Seared Lands, wraps up a lot of storylines, so it could possibly end there. However, there are ongoing talks about another three to six books, so keep your fingers crossed on that. Um, have some very interesting and unusual things going on with that story. Um, Split Feather, like I said, I expect to be writing more in that world. Because Siggy's story not only needs to be fleshed out, but um, uh, Cyrus's story, the uh, like I said, the the Persian um, Muslim American boy, I really want to tell his story as well. Um, I, I want to represent some underrepresented voices and some uniquely American magic systems, and then may have a couple more things on the back burner here. Uh, and as well, I've been writing for a couple of anthologies. Uh, we've had um, the Grimdark Magazine's Evil as a Matter of Perspective. I was um, honored to have a nice little story in that. Um, I've written from, for the Grimdark Magazine. And um, I've got a really cool story um, related to the Seared Lands coming up in Sean Speakman's Unfettered 3 analogy, uh, anthology, I'm sorry. And... Um, Really, really excited about that one. There's some stellar names in that anthology. Well, that's cool. And then one thing, um, we mentioned that Split Feather was an urban fantasy. The Dragon's Legacy, I consider that like a true epic fantasy series, but it's probably also mm-hmm. um, more veers towards the grimdark as far as like the, the epic fantasy goes. How would you classify it? It's a little hard to classify it because it's not a noble, bright universe you know like david eddings comes to mind and you know that the knight is not going to die and the young boy isn't going to die and his aunt the magician is not going to die and you can kind of sit there and be safe knowing that your favorite characters are going to live but um you know life isn't like that sometimes sometimes a good person fucks up and it just stays fucked up you can't fix it you can't go back um, sometimes people you love do crappy things because people really are out for their own interest. And sometimes stuff goes south, you know, good people die in a house fire for no apparent reason. Um, but there, it, it's not, it's, it's not a hopeless world either. Um, one of the themes I really like to show is that, you know, if the older generation hands a younger generation an absolute um, plate full of crap, the younger generation can still do their best to make the make some good out of a bad situation. Um, if they don't, you know, although they, they generally will make their own mistakes too. Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I don't like to have just a good guy who's good and a bad guy who's bad. I, I like to have people more or less trying to do the best they can. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. And let's just see what happens from there. Yeah, I know a lot of your characters do make decisions that are questionable, but it does seem like most of them are doing those because they do think that it's going to make the situation better. Um, They're not just straight up evil. And I think that that's something that uh, where fantasy has really come a long way that it's not so black and white anymore. I mean, I love the Wheel of Time, but let's be honest. I mean, you have the Dark Lord as your, uh, just like the Lord of the Rings, you know, and the there's a good guy and a real bad guy. 
Exactly. And I, I enjoy reading those, but I enjoy it more if I, it, I think it resonates more if, you know, the bad guy is a person and the good guy is a person. And when you think about it, you know, if, if you think about World War Two, you could tell a, a story of a, a German soldier who was pressed into service and make it be sympathetic. You can tell a story of an allied soldier pressed into service and also make that sympathetic. And then you set them at odds with each other. And that's more of a story because here's two characters that you can sympathize and empathize with and relate to. And they both have stories that are believable. And, and yet to each of them, the other one is the bad guy. I think that's more interesting and tells more about the human experience than just, oh, I'm good because I'm good. Um, you know, and, and being uh, former military myself, I know that when I was um, a young soldier, the world was a lot more black and white. You know, there was good guys and bad guys, and we were the good guys. Uh, now that I'm not a young soldier, I see a lot more colors in the world than just the black and white. And I think that that's more poignant. What made you decide to uh, to go that route and become a soldier um, when you were probably right out of high school, I'm guessing? I'm a terrible salesperson. That's what happened. <laughs> um, my, I was trying to talk my little brother into going to the Army so that he could get some discipline in his life. Um, I was living in Hawaii at the time. I was working as an underwater photographer, having a good time. And I oversold, and I ended up joining the Army. Um, also, I wanted to go to Siberia and go fishing in a, the worst way. So I thought if I join the Army, learn Russian, get out and get an MBA, I can go over, because uh, this was right when the Soviet Union was getting ready to disband, which, you know, pretty much gives you an idea of my age. <laughs> um, but then I could go over and I could teach American style business just as a way to support my fishing habit. Um, but I ended up getting Arabic, so I have not yet been to Siberia and gone fishing, uh, which is sad. <laughs> yeah, I actually took uh, one year of Arabic in college. I was, uh, I was actually a, a religion major and a history major, so most of my, I took uh, a Greek as my main one, but I just took one year of Arabic because this is something that I was interested in. And it is a very beautiful flowing language. It is. It's a, it's a fascinating language. And um, a neat thing about studying languages, too, is it gives you the ability to, even in your mind, think different types of thoughts and to hold different worldviews um, in, in, in one body. Uh, because there are concepts that you can express in one language that you cannot express in the other language. And thought patterns that you can't really have in one language that you can have in another one. So um, I really wish that, uh, you know, all of our schools would teach at least a second language. Yeah, well, and that's something to, that just made me think that um, it's kind of one of the, the big issues. And like I said, I took Greek and, and uh, um, did a lot of like study the Bible, obviously, and I'm not a religious person anymore. But um, one of the big things that uh, since um, it was Aramaic speakers writing in Greek, that uh, uh, wrote the Bible. It's why we have so much, uh, so much confusion and uh, people interpreting things differently is because they were thinking a different way than what they actually wrote. 
And so it, it's it's something that's funny to me that and that's one thing that I guess that the uh, Quran has that's a little more pure since it has to stay with the Arabic. Well, on the other hand, you have modern day speakers trying to uh, trying to glean information and sense out of a uh, current leader's tweets that are thirty <laughs> seconds old and still having difficulty doing that. So you know, <laughs> just because you speak the same language. Jen, just because you're contemporary doesn't mean you're going to understand what the hell is going on. No. Uh, no, sometimes things seem to have gone very, very awry, don't they? Speaking of grimdark. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I this isn't a political podcast, so it's not the place to do it, but oh, wow. What happened to America? <sighs> Yeah, you'll. I don't know. You're gonna have to wait for my next book to find that out. Sorry. <laughs> hey, there we got so got a little bit of a uh, little bit of info here, did we? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 doing my absolute best here. But but one thing <laughs> one thing we can speak about though, because um, you know it is in the dragon's legacy, um, and and I find that in speculative fiction, in writing speculative fiction, you can put a lot of um, social and political commentary in, in a way that people might be closed off to if you were writing, say if you were writing about Chicago, and you're writing about race relations. Um, people go into that with preconceived notions and uh, shut down their ability to think critically or to hear critically. Um, but in a speculative fiction world, I've already told you that there's a dragon gestating in the middle of the world and there's, you know, giant robotic spiders and priests that sew dead people's arms onto themselves to make them look more like spiders, which, by the way, is gross. And so I've already gotten you to suspend your belief system a lot. And then if I sneak in some political commentary or some of my ideas about how othering um, another people who are maybe less unlike you than you think is not a good idea. You know, people might be a little more open to letting that filter get through their filters than they would be. Like I said, if I was writing about Chicago. Yeah. Well, and I think that if, especially if you do it well, like you have, and it's subtle, then, uh, then that's definitely something that can uh, open people's minds Although I something that you said that is not uh, directly related to what we we're speaking about, I do love that the one of the, the first one star review of your book I, I saw though was that uh, there aren't even any dragons in the book. And I was like, uh, did you not read the entire premise of the book? <laughs> right, and and the sun dragon really is a thing. The sun dragon isn't just a concept; he really is there. Yeah, you know, I don't make that completely you don't completely get it yet it shows up a little bit later on but you know yeah there there is a, an actual dragon not a mythological dragon but an actual dragon gestating in the middle of the world so yes I, just one big one yeah well and then and like i said i, I mean i uh, that's what i assumed was i assumed that was actually the case but i just loved the uh, the review where i didn't even have any dragons no, right yeah, just dragon? one yeah. well two Two dragons, yeah. <laughs> well, um, is there anything else that you would like to um, talk about with uh, either your writing or uh, anything else you'd like to, your uh, places that you'd like to be reached on social media as well? All right. Well, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Deborah A. Wolf, 
I'm on Twitter as Bard Queen. Um, I have a very neglected, sadly neglected, long neglected webpage, um, DeborahAWolf.com, which I will get around to one of these days when I'm not under such a tight deadline. I generally have, you know, just a couple of months to knock out an epic after I'm done with all of the extensive, ridiculous 300 pages worth of outlines that I do ahead of time. So my social media is a little under robust at the moment, but you can find me on Facebook mostly. Awesome. And yeah, it does really sound like uh, you sounds like you have at least three projects underway, uh, possibly more. Probably more. <laughs> All righty. Well, do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about in the, the podcast? You know, I, I would like to thank the people who reached out to me and have told me how much they have enjoyed the Dragon's Legacy and the Forbidden City. Um, it's it's a different story. It's written it's written really heavy and really thick, it, like a you know like a fudge pound cake. It's just not something you, you're going to eat the whole thing in one sitting without, you know, dying. Um, it's written for a very specific audience of really smart people who read a lot of fantasy and like a, a bigger, more intense story. Um, I wasn't sure how it was going to be received because it's not something that has a very broad audience. Um, and a lot of people have just really gotten it and have really loved it and those are the people that I wrote this for and I just want to say uh, thanks for thanks for letting me know that I got it right <laughs> well I think that the thing is is that a lot of um, a lot of people aren't writing the the epic fantasy the way that you wrote this epic fantasy anymore I think that um, this is something that uh, was done a lot more in like the 80s and 90s and now people seem to, uh, you know, do a lot more of like single point of view care, um, stories or things like that. And your story really is just so epic in scope and scale. But I mean, like I said, I just loved it so much and was able to just visualize it. Um, and I guess maybe that's because that's the way that you write as well, uh, visually. And I think that it's a book that uh, anyone who loves the traditional epic fantasy should love this book. I think it's just something that we don't see quite as much anymore. And I'm not sure, maybe it's because, uh, you know, the shorter attention span of uh, social media world or something like that. I, I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, we've become used to, we've become used to books that are... Um, you know, quick and dirty, and I don't see mean mean that in a bad way because I like books that are quick and dirty. You know, I like urban fantasy. Um, I, I it's it's a lot of fun. I like stuff that I can sit down and and read at one go. But I also once in a while like to be challenged by something like you know George Martin or um, you know Abercrombie or something like that something with just a little more meat on the bones and I really wanted to write one of those I wasn't planning on doing it for my first book but what the hell it happened <laughs> yeah you don't have a chest of uh, of uh, previously written stories sitting back there then huh exactly exactly and and kudos to my agent for being able to sell that right off the bat and then poof, three months later in Urban Fantasy too. Like, I don't even know what this person's doing, but it's okay, so I guess I'll sell it. 
Awesome. Well, hey, I really appreciate uh, your patience, first of all, and uh, with all of my uh, delays that I've had. And um, I thank you for uh, just talking about your books with me. It's something that, like I said, I've really, really loved the books. Uh, both of them have been just awesome. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm hoping that it's six books and not three that you end up writing uh, more in the series. And so uh, um, just thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you very much for having me on. All right. Well, you have a great day then. Thanks. You too. 